Take a moment and just imagine with me. Imagine a world that runs on civil discourse. A place where uncomfortable conversations or maybe even heated arguments around the Thanksgiving table don't exist. Where political conversations don't turn ugly immediately. A world where calm, insightful discussion is the productive norm. Maybe even fights in the hockey rink or solved with a handshake instead of fists. Well, maybe not that last one, but you get the idea. Anyway, sounds like a beautiful world, but a fantasy. Never going to happen, right? Well, if you were to ask our two guests today, they'd tell you that this is a world we could be living in right now. All it takes is a little listening and a little practice. I'm Jacob Carroza, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. Michael Neblo is a professor of political science, philosophy, communication, and public policy at Ohio State. His research focuses on deliberative democracy and political psychology. He's also a published author and the director of Ohio State's Institute for Democratic Engagement and Accountability. He sits down with our Chris Bournet to discuss the power of civil discourse, how we can work past our partisanship, and what role universities and students play in the efforts to understand one another better. Well, Michael, thank you again for agreeing to talk about this topic. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for for having me. I'm really excited and grateful to be here. So I guess starting off, why is it even important for citizens to engage in civil discourse in a, in a democratic society? Why is that important at all? It's a good question because a lot of people think that politics is uh, really about power and money and votes. And so it's reasonable to ask why we should spend a lot of time and energy and emotional investment in trying to maintain civil discourse. And I think there are two reasons. I think one, it's a good way to, to show respect to each other as democratic equals, as democratic citizens, people who have to live together and have a certain degree of shared fate. And then the other reason is that we make better decisions. If we can have a civil discussion without it spinning off into name calling and fruitless yelling at each other, we can share reasons. We can share perspectives. We can try to understand where there's room for compromise or or even win-wins that are available to us sometimes. And civil dialogue, civil discourse can help reveal those opportunities and can help us make better decisions. So how is it even possible to have civil dialogue in this era when there's such extreme political polarization and we may not even agree on the same set of facts? Well, unfortunately, it's a lot harder. (laughs) But that doesn't mean I think we should just punt as soon as it gets hard. And to take an example, I'm I'm a political scientist, right? I engage with people all the time when we don't agree on the facts. If anything, we wouldn't have anything to talk about if we already agreed on the facts. What we're arguing over is the theory and the facts, right? And that's precisely why I think it's incumbent upon us to do two things. One, to only go to the mattresses, so to speak, when 
we really need to. It can't be a cynical tactic that we just go to because we think we can get a little advantage going that way. If we do that all the time, it corrodes that background of respect and trust that facilitates us being able to show each other respect and make those good decisions. So that, that's why I think it's really important that people don't pull the trigger and pull away from, from civil discourse or engage in disruptive or, or less respectful forms of politics unless they really have good reason to do so. If they do have good reason to do so, I repeat, not only is it okay, we have to sometimes, but that we should err on the side of believing in the good faith of the person across the table from us and trying to meet them where they are, understand them, and engage them where they are. And I would say the same thing is true of polarization, that in itself, disagreeing strongly about what to do doesn't mean that we can't see the other side, respect it, disagree, offer the arguments why we think our position is better, but to do so in a way that leaves open the possibility that they might have something to what they're saying, and, and even if we ultimately think there's nothing to what they're saying, they're still human beings and our fellow citizens and worthy of that respect and engagement. At schools and universities, how do educators and students talk about issues like politics and social issues in a way in which everyone feels respected and heard? So in a, in a lot of ways, I think universities are, are set up to foster, encourage, and value those sorts of disagreements and, and that form of dialogue. That said, it's clearly become more difficult over time. And I, in some ways, I think that has more to do with a decline in trust than in civility per se. Because you've got a lot of people who are self-disciplined and they're not engaging in uncivil forms of behavior at the drop of a hat themselves, but they don't trust that the other person is not. And that just leads to disengagement or to people sitting on their hands or to kind of closing off ahead of time rather than really listening and trying to, to meet people where they're at and take them seriously from their point of view, even if we ultimately continue to disagree at a very deep level. And so as an instructor, I, I think my goal has always been, but it's even deeper and more urgent now, to try to facilitate a local class culture where people see that it's okay to disagree and that it can be done respectfully and constructively. It doesn't mean that the other person is bad, that, that we don't jump to the conclusion that if we disagree, somebody has to be stupid or morally vicious. Uh, it might be that we have different life experiences, that we have different perspectives, different theoretical backgrounds that we, we bring to the task. And so modeling that out of the gate for the students, showing a certain degree of vulnerability, not coming in hard every time I feel provoked, <laughs> I think is really essential. But it can be done. I'm teaching right now, and it's actually a course on, in a sense, civil discourse. It's called Debating Democracy. And we've had guest speakers from former members of Congress and lobbyists and people from uh, opposite sides of the political spectrum. But the, the great part of it is that our guests model. These, these are people who, for a living, are in conflict with each other about politics and yet they treat each other with dignity and respect and understand where the other person is coming from. And, and so I think it, it starts 
really to the extent that faculty have you know influence on this it starts with modeling it in the classroom and rewarding that behavior when the students exhibit it outside of the classroom how can we have conversations with people who we may not see eye to eye we may not see the world in the same way yeah i think one of the the key ways to do that and this is backed by research is to ask questions and ask questions in a way that doesn't implicitly um, say that you're agreeing with the person, but doesn't start from the premise that they must be crazy. And, and really trying to understand, you can think that what they're saying is immovably crazy, but that doesn't mean they are crazy. Because all of us at one point or another probably believe or espouse something that's pretty indefensible. And the key is to understand what got them there and if it's available, helping to gently at least help them see the alternative, why you don't agree. And sometimes it goes back to actually just a version of what we were talking about in the last question, which is just modeling for people, having them experience in a very human, direct, one-to-one -one way that disagreement doesn't have to mean, doesn't have to jump to some sort of judgment about another person's sanity or humanity. So can you tell me about the work you do with the Institute for Democratic Engagement and Accountability, whose acronym is appropriately IDEA? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, uh, I, I kind of like the idea that it's the Ohio State <laughs> idea. I really think we should be asking people more <laughs> uh, what they think they're good consistent and encouraging them to re-engage and facilitating them being able to do so in a, in a constructive way. At our institute, what we really focus on, we, we mobilize expertise and the resources of the university as well, but it's not to make or recommend substantive policy in itself. It's to create the conditions where people who have stepped away from politics because they think nobody's listening and that it's just a blood sport, it's an ugly thing they want nothing to do with, who have stepped away from politics. And just to go back to your previous question briefly, that magnifies the perception that it's only people shouting at each other because a lot of other people have opted out saying, I want no part of this, right? But in the Institute's work, one of the things we really try to do is say, no, there are opportunities for this to, to do a better form of politics. Come on back in. And people do, and they do in droves. And then what we do is subsidize their ability to participate meaningfully. We take really high-quality information from government reports, nonpartisan government reports, scale it to a ninth grade reading level. We record it so that if you're blind or illiterate, you can still participate. It, we're working on translating into the 14 most common languages spoken in the United States. So we're really, really focused on inclusion and bringing all the voices back in. So that, that's the, the citizen side of it. And then we go to elected officials and we say, no, your, your, your constituents aren't apathetic. They're frustrated. That's why they're not participating. You think that they're apathetic. That's the story. They care very much, but they think nobody's listening. If you go and credibly tell them, no, really, I want to hear what you have to say, they're going to show up and tell you. It, and it turns out they do. And so the, the Institute's primary work, in a way, is to be matchmakers. It's to find elected officials who are willing to re-engage and to listen to people beyond the donors and the party activists where everybody already knows where they stand. Why have a deliberation with them? They, they, they tell you with their checkbooks what they want you to do, right? Regular citizens oftentimes don't know ahead of time what they want. 
They just want to figure out the issue by their own lights and have a chance to talk to somebody in authority to make those decisions and convey their views on the matter. And that's what we do in deliberative town halls. We take random samples of constituents, make it easy for them to participate, subsidize their information searches, help them find good quality sources, and then make it very easy to directly convey those views to their fellow citizens, to engage their fellow citizens, but then also do that in the presence and interaction with empowered decision makers. Well, Michael, thank you again for sharing your insights and your expertise, and thank you for your work. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Gretchen Klingler also believes we can work past our partisanship. She has to. Gretchen spent six years in the Air Force and eventually became a Pat Tillman Foundation military scholar who earned degrees in cultural anthropology and Arabic at Ohio State. Now she's the senior veterans manager for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, a bipartisan nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. She helps veterans share their experiences to educate Congress and Americans on the international strategic importance of combining diplomacy and development with military force. She sits down with our Ross Bischoff to discuss her work at the nonprofit, how her military experience shapes her interactions, and how we can be just as thoughtful in our conversations with others. Gretchen, thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. You're a war veteran working to make war rare. Can you sort of unpack that? Explain what your job is. My job is that I work for a nonprofit that's based in D.C. called the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. And the organization itself advocates for the international affairs budget. It's a small 1% of the congressional budget that funds all of our diplomacy and development internationally overseas. So think funding the State Department, USAID, Peace Corps, all of these programs that we're using as a nation to hopefully get out ahead of war and conflict. It can't always be done, of course. However, if it's not funded appropriately, then we certainly can't get out ahead of it. And so my position is that I work with veterans across the country, asking them to come and be a part of our coalition, come to our events and learn more about what these programs do for our country, why they need to continue to be funded, and then offer them opportunities to reach out to their representatives and senators to share why it's important to them as military veterans that we're supporting soft power and diplomacy and development. What is soft power? (laughs) Soft power, it's, yeah, it's one of those military-ish concepts, but if you think of the military as hard power and diplomacy, development, those things that influence other people, that's more of the soft power piece. If you combine the two of them together, it's been termed smart power. What is incredible about your story is we live in this incredibly divisive, echo chambery kind of world where it's me versus you and all these things. And yet you are cutting through all of that to try to get things done. Yeah. How do you do that? (laughs) I listen a lot and I do it very carefully. When it comes to the programs that I advocate for professionally, there are a lot of different ways to yes to supporting these programs. For some people, it may be that it's important for their faith and they believe their humanitarian values 
speak to why we as a nation should do this. For other people, they may believe that the economics of helping a country overseas build a port so they can receive American goods and services, that those economic benefits to our country are extremely important. I'm not trying to identify somebody as friend or foe or as you know whatever political stripe somebody is choosing to wear. I want to know what they care about and what makes them tick and why. So why does somebody care about the economy? Why is this something that is so important to them? Why does somebody care about humanitarian values or their faith values? And the more that I get to know that person as an individual, the more that I'm able to see the bigger picture of how maybe this person, if they're interested in supporting the work that I do professionally, how they may be interested and fit into the model that we are working with. And so if we can help advocate for resolutions before people start shooting at each other, then that is, that's the goal. And you don't need to be any particular political stripe in order to advocate for that. We're very proud to be a bipartisan coalition working on both sides and across the aisle. What does it take to just cut through all the, I guess, the rhetoric and the partisanship? What, what are maybe just some basic tips you'd give to somebody? I would say that everyone that I have talked to has something that matters to them deeply, past politics. Maybe it's their community or their faith or a, a hobby or an experience that they've had or a place that they've lived. And that's the baseline that I start at. I want to know the person as the person, and then I build from there. Most people do know what things that you can and can't say that might upset somebody or offend somebody or set somebody off. And I, I really just avoid those. It's because I'm not trying to sit down with somebody and make somebody mad. I'm trying to get to know them. If I throw out degrading commentary about you know, one political side or the other, then I'm already starting to degrade that relationship before I even set a firm foundation. So I would say one of the biggest pieces of advice that I would give is we know what rhetoric is going to upset people. Why do we have to use it? What is the need to use it? And if you're going into a conversation to get to know somebody, don't use it. If you're going into a conversation because you're trying to argue and prove that you're right, that's a completely separate discussion. That's not the kind of discussion that I'm trying to have. Reflecting on my military experience, there are so many people that I served with, I have no idea what their politics were or are. I don't know. I just knew that we were there in the same room. I had a respect for them, they had a respect for me, and we were doing our jobs. In the end, what you were supposed to be doing in the military is you were supposed to have your buddy's back and your buddy was supposed to have yours, regardless of what religion, politics, you know, background. That was supposed to be what it was, and often that, that is what it was. I pull a lot from that, my time in the military, reflecting on those things, because I didn't need to know what somebody's politics were in order to get the job done. Talk about how important it is when you're when you're dealing with a lot of people and maybe you're in a room discussing something. How important is it to just 
listen, respect people, allow people to be heard, like those basic things maybe you learned in kindergarten that we've gotten away from. But how important is that and how do you do that? So without people feeling like they are heard and respected, it is impossible to build a community because everybody is in their own corners. Everybody has their shields up. Everybody feels like they have to defend themselves. But when you open the floor to people and give them the opportunity to speak, I mean, that is really the crux of what a democracy is, is the opportunity to speak and be heard. And if we're not doing that, then there's no way to bridge those gaps. If all we're doing is picking sides and you know, throwing spears. The way that I do that is I do my best to try to see both sides of the story. Now, granted, I may not agree with it, but I try to understand it from that person's perspective. Maybe what their lived experiences are, where they've been how they were raised, uh, what era they were raised in. I mean, there are, there are so many pieces to this puzzle, and that's one of the things that I just love about anthropology is there's so many ways to look at the human experience. But if I'm taking all of these things into consideration and do my best to assume that someone has the best of intentions, the end result ends up being I'm able to have a conversation with somebody and allow them the opportunity to share what is on their mind and what's on their heart and really just try to see it from their perspective without me trying to put my own judgment on it. If I'm trying to get to know somebody, placing blame and judgment on decisions that they've made in their life makes it that much harder to build rapport and to create that foundational level of respect. What is it like to sit down with people, have this kind of a civil discourse or a really just a positive conversation about this and just just see what happens or feel the energy in the room? What's that like for you? It is like feeling a weight lifted off my shoulders where I know that the person that is sitting next to me respects me and I respect them even if we disagree. And so there isn't that burden of, I have to say the right thing, I have to do the right thing, I have to watch what I say about this and that. I mean, in practice, I've gotten used to that because of course I have my own politics and so do they. But if I'm having a conversation that is supposed to be built around mutual respect and trust and building understanding of each other's experiences, if that person is meeting me where I am and I'm meeting me where they are, we're able to build a foundation of friendship and trust and understanding that goes past politics and some of the pettiness that that we see right now across social media or media in general. I think there's so much focus right now on yelling at somebody until they are willing to back down. Not, not agree with you, but just back down and be quiet so that say it were me that like I'm going to yell at you and demean you and make you look bad until you just sit down and be quiet and then I can have the platform. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that we're sitting down and helping each other understand. And that's hard work. It is hard work and it is 
exhausting at times because you really have to sit down and put yourself in somebody else's shoes and try to understand life through their eyes, not as you see them, but as they see themselves. Sometimes that changes minds. Sometimes sharing my experience with somebody goes, oh, gosh, I didn't realize that somebody had that experience before. Man, I really need to think about where I'm coming from in this. And sometimes their experience has solidified them and is so resolute that they hear you, but it's not changing their mind. And I don't go into conversations to change people's minds. I just want them to understand where I'm coming from. Gretchen, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. We all have our own politics. That's not going to change. We all have our own unique histories, our individual experiences and life lessons. That being said, we also all have a responsibility to recognize that in each other, to listen to one another and accept others' realities, even if we might not agree. And until we do that, the echo chambers will keep echoing, the rhetoric will keep flying, and the Thanksgiving dinner conversations will keep getting more tense as the mashed potatoes slowly grow cold. A world of civil discourse is possible. All we have to do is listen, understand, and remember the lesson we all learned when we were just young children. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu slash now. I'm your host, Jacob Carosa. Thanks for listening.